I never do. I never think of it, ever. So uh, there it is. But that sounds great now. Thank you, Mark. So uh, listen, uh, this morning before we jump into our teaching, I just want to take a moment um, to recognize a person that I've known for, I, I was trying to figure it out. It's right around 25 years uh, that I've known this person. We met way back when Eastgate was meeting in the Promenade Mall, which I don't know if you've seen that. It's a little, it was a little strip mall down the way when we first started. Uh, but uh, we're, we're, she's celebrating something today that you don't normally get to do. Uh, a lot of people, uh, this is something to aspire to. Uh, but today is uh, Barb Moss's 90th birthday. And, uh, and I just thought it was important to celebrate uh, such a milestone. So if, if nothing else, I just want to, from here, wish you a, a happy birthday to you. You've been such an inspiration to me and uh, a representative of Jesus. And I think that that's a marvelous thing. That's a marvelous testimony to your life. Right on, right on. <laughs> I believe that as well. So. Oh, gee, we don't need to go there. So <laughs> he was, I think, I think Rob was easily amused. I think that's what that, <laughs> but, but listen, here's what we pray. We pray that God will fill your day and your days to come with his grace and his peace. And we love you, Barb. So, so let's, <laughs> so happy birthday to you, Barb. There's another little thing uh, at the end we'll talk about. But uh, listen, uh, on the opposite end of that scale, uh, my seventh grandchild was born this week, uh, born into the world. You know, the family, the family that I asked God for just keeps expanding and expanding and we're running out of room. But we are we are immeasurably blessed. And you were down at the hospital and uh, I got a chance to hold him and I was praying for him and I was looking and for a minute there he started to open his eyes a little bit, looking at what would just be blurry lights, you know, and hearing this strange voice talking to him. But I was just saying, you know, you have so much to discover. You know, we'll do our best to tell you the story so far, but there's so much for you to find out. And, you know, it got me thinking about our new birth experience. And of course, my kids are like, oh, something made you think of the Bible? Oh, how strange. But in the beginning stages, of our new birth, our salvation experience. It's just, it is such an avalanche of discovery when we come into relationship with Christ. I mean, learning more about the gospel, learning what our lives are like, learning about the world around us from God's perspective. It's just all this amazing stuff to be gathering in when we come into that relationship. But then sometimes we kind of plateau, you know, and, and, we get enough knowledge to be able to follow this life of faith and we start to lose the edge of that sense of wonder and discovery in our pursuit of God. Years ago, a guy told me that he didn't like Eastgate's emphasis on Bible study because he said to me, you know, I've read the Bible. And and honestly, I was saddened by that, though, because, uh, you know, it's, it appeared that he had all that he felt he needed at that point. And so what's left is just a life of moral maintenance after that, nothing else going on. But if there's one thing that I believe that the New Testament encourages us to, it is this sense of adventure. 
in our life of faith. You've heard me tell the story before. I used to see this Christian faith, this Christian truth that I came into as like some static structure, something that had been figured out that I was here to defend. And anything that looked like it was threatening, you know, I'm going to take pot shots at. And, but then I realized it's not that at all. It's coming into a wide open field with trails moving through it. It's a constant ongoing path of, of exploration and discovery. And, and this is what Jesus calls us to, that sense of a childlike wonder and exploration as we look at this world from the perspective of what it is that God has done and is presently doing. So we're coming back to our study in Ephesians today. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd like to head over to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we looked at Paul's introductory song or poem. It was a, remember in the Greek, it was a long run-on sentence that celebrated God, how he's loved us before we ever knew him, uh, before we ever loved him. He redeemed us and he's given us his spirit as a down payment or a certification, certification that we now belong to God's family. We've been adopted into that family. And we talk about bearing the family resemblance, uh, as we live and interact with each other uh, or with others in this world as members of his family. Now today, Paul's going to move from a song to a a prayer. And in the Greek, again, it's another long run-on sentence. And it reveals for us what Paul's prayer and hope was for his fellow believers, which, you know, was the recipients of his letter, but it's also us, remember. We're the fellow believers that he's writing to in in this uh, as well. And and so um, this is Paul's hope for us. And again, I believe this is God's inspired word. So what I believe this is telling us is God's desire for us. What God, you know, you'll hear me say Paul is saying this or that. But behind that, I believe this is God's will being revealed to us. What it is he, he hopes for us, he desires for us. So in the Greek, the section that we're going to read flows directly from what he's just, just written. So we could say, you know, We're loved by God. We're redeemed by God. We have God's spirit living in us. That's what we covered last week. And so now what? You know, we have those things, but but now what? And the now what is what Paul gets at in this prayer. We are loved. We're redeemed. We're indwelt. And and here now is how it affects our lives. Paul uh, prays that we'll have this ongoing life of discovery of what it means to be loved, redeemed, and indwelt by God. That's his prayer for his fellow believers. That's what we're going to look at today. What does Paul pray that we'll discover? And what does that mean for our lives? Those are the questions we want to answer. So if you're there in Ephesians 1, we're going to pick back up where we left off last week, starting with verse 15. He says, ever since I first heard of y'all's strong faith in the Lord. And so here's the thing. It's so important. We don't have an equivalent for the Greek plural of you. So, uh, except for y'all, right? So we're going to have to just employ that here because it's so important that we keep the idea that this is to a community of people. This is to a group of people, God's family. It's not just individuals that we're picking out. This will affect us individually. But these things are for a group of people, for a, a common people who've been coming, who've come into God's family. So, so ever since I heard of y'all's strong faith in the Lord Jesus... And y'all's love for God's people everywhere. I have not stopped thanking God for y'all. I pray for y'all constantly. 
And I want to just stop there for just a moment because, because I want to point out what makes Paul so thankful is how these people are living out their Christianity. They have a strong faith in Jesus, which results in a love for God's people everywhere. Not just the ones in their group, not just the ones in their denomination, not just a love for people who share the same cultural or economic situation. No, a faith in Jesus' lordship results in loving all others. And for Paul, whenever he saw that, he knew, hey, Christianity's happening here. This is, this is happening in this, and I'm so thankful for it. And so I think that that is an important attribute for us to aspire to as a community, for a faith community, for the church. Okay, we'll keep going. Verse 17, what's Paul's prayer for his readers? He's asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you all spiritual wisdom and insight. And that, that word there is, is, again, apocalypsis. It's revelation. So that y'all might grow in y'all's knowledge of God. So I'm not going to keep saying y'all through all of this. You understand when we're saying you and your, this is talking about us as a, as a group of people. So again, Paul prays for us to gain a transcendent wisdom, a spiritual wisdom, meaning an ability to apprehend more than what we can just take in with our physical senses. He wants that to result in revelation. Remember, apocalypse, the uncovering of something that we hadn't yet realized before, which enables us to grow in our knowledge of God. And that is something I want to park on for just a minute here. The word he uses for knowledge is epignosis. And it's different from the other word that's used for knowledge in the Greek, which is gnosis. Epignosis carries with it the the idea of something much more thorough than that. We could say much more intimate than that. So Paul isn't praying that we're able to gather up more information about God or store up a lot of data about God in some sort of analytical sense. He wants something deeper for us. He wants a revelation for us. And I think that this means to us that we're called to this ongoing discovery of God's activity and purpose in our lives. This is what we're called to. This is what we aspire to, an ongoing discovery of that. And and. Think about how that takes us out of a static uh, connection to religion into something more intimate and and ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-evolving around us. One of the risks that we run in focusing on Bible study here is that there's always a temptation to substitute information with intimacy. We can start uh, assuming that, that God wants his people to have a lot of doctrinal positions all plotted out and a ton of Bible verses memorized. And there's nothing wrong with knowing doctrine or memorizing the Bible, but we don't want to look at it as though that's the end game of this, as though God is trying to put together a good, you know, trivial pursuit team that he can take around to, you know, full of facts about God and his word. What, that's not really what Paul's getting at. What he's getting at, this knowledge that he's praying that we gain is far more relational than that. So I mentioned last week about how, you know, when I first saw Robbie and I was just determined I was going to, I was going to win this girl over, you know, we talked about that a little bit and, 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 you know, as things went along, it became clear that, that she was having feelings for me as well. So there was this mutual attraction and, and, and it was developing into, you know, a relationship. And, and, and as that was developing, there was information that was being gathered in the process of that. 
So I learned about where she was born, where she was from, the state she grew up in, her parents. I learned about that. I, as things went along, I learned about the things that, you know, she liked. Hey, she likes kittens and sports. Wow, how cool is that? And, and things that she didn't like. Oh, she doesn't like frogs or punk rock. Oh, okay, that's a bummer. But, but that information, that information that I was gaining was not just data that I was collecting on this girl so that I could chart it all out. And I've got the information on this, this woman. No, those were discoveries that then had a profound effect on my life, on, on things that, 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 that I developed into, I, I, things that I learned which began to shape my future and my trajectory. I knew it wasn't going to include frogs uh, or a lot of punk rock, at least around her. I mean, and this was true for both of us. We're gathering information, but not just for the sake of the information. It's because it was informing us how it is that we related to each other. Uh, And so that sort of relational knowledge is what ended up shaping us as a couple. And, And that's what Paul is getting at in his prayer for us to grow in the knowledge of God. That is that we learn about God, his values, his priorities, his purposes. No, we don't just pile up trivial bits of information about the divine, but that we're learning who God is. And, and that begins to shape us so that his values then impact our values. His purposes and priorities are what begin to shape our choices and, and how it is that we interact with our fellow human being. And this doesn't happen overnight, you know. Robbie's and my relationship has been ongoing for many, many years. Uh, uh, and so, and it's still ongoing. I'm still discovering, you know, things. Oh, you, you hate that. I didn't realize that. Or, you know, she, hey, she's happy when this is going on. It's con- continual. These things continue to grow and we continue to learn. And so it's an ongoing pursuit. And, and that's true with our relationship with God. That's what we're doing here today. This is part of that pursuit. We're, we're praying and worshiping and reading his word together. It's this ongoing discovery of who God is, what his values are, what he intends for us as his, his creation. We're, we're learning how he loves us and, and, and how that shapes us into the people he intended for us to be. That's what this is all part of. That's how a relationship with an invisible friend plays out in, in our lives, in our experiences. Okay, moving on. Paul continues to pray, verse 18. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light, or your, your translation may say enlightened, so that, uh, which is the same thing, so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he's called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. That last line there, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance, that statement has one that is one that's been difficult for the translators. And the various translations are all over the place on that. Some read the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Others say his inheritance among the saints. Others say his inheritance that will be yours together with all God's people. So here's the thing. It gets tricky because in or among makes a pretty distinct difference in meaning uh, on this. One way could be picturing God's people as Jesus's inheritance. The other way pictures Christ's inheritance, which God's people join in on. Uh, Which is it? I don't know. You'll have to become a Greek scholar and figure that out. Based on the way Paul uses the language of inheritance in the book of Romans, in his letter to the Romans, I'm 
inclined to see this, and you know, I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of scholarly work that goes into people formulating these ideas, but I'm inclined to see this as Christ's inheritance, which we as God's people now share in. This is Christ's inheritance, and we get drawn into it. We now are recipients. So the question is, what inheritance and why would that inspire hope in in Paul's thinking? So we hear the word inheritance and what are we thinking of? We're thinking of, you know, yeah, you know, you're thinking in terms of sitting in a lawyer's office while somebody reads a will to the families gathered around, you know, to my nephew, I leave my collection of stuffed weasels or whatever, those kinds of things. (laughs) But in the biblical narrative, inheritance always pointed to one thing. You go back into the Old Testament, inheritance meant one thing for the Israelites. The people that were coming in through the Exodus were looking forward to their inheritance. What was their inheritance? What do we know of in the Old Testament that everybody was anxious for? The, the promised land, the Israel, the land, the promised land. And that's something that becomes a picture of the restored world in the writings of the Old Testament prophets as well as the New Testament authors. It's an image of things being put back to the way they were meant to be, put back to Eden conditions, all things made right again. That is the inheritance of Christ. And he will rule over this redeemed world. And we, his people, are raised back to our original position of being image bearers of God, joining in the oversight of a restored paradise world. That's the idea. So are you with me? We tracking with this? You get what we're saying? Okay. So that is why this inheritance he's talking about would inspire hope in us. And I believe that's the next thing we learn that we're called to an ongoing discovery of hope in a new creation. Paul prayed that our hearts would be flooded with light. That is enlightened as to what is coming. That this present Broken world is not all there is to this story or to our stories. Something so much better is on the way. And that's the hope Paul prayed that we'd have a growing awareness of. And hope, you know, hope is one of those words that we, we struggle with, struggle with getting a proper idea of it. For some people, hope indicates a lack of certainty. You know, I hope I don't lose my job, but it's not looking so good. Or a lot of times, hope is mistaken for wishful thinking. I hope Ohio State and Michigan fans will get along this year or or, or something like that. Other times, it's confused with having, you know, a glass half full mentality of optimism. But that's not hope. In the biblical sense, you know, Forrest Gump was full of optimism. Paul was full of hope. But what is hope? Biblical hope has been defined as a forward-looking faith. It's a, a confident belief, not based in circumstance or experience, but based on the promise of God that the future he says will happen will happen. In fact, in Christ and through the Holy Spirit within us, we are already connected to that new world. We already are part of that new world, which is going to break onto the scene. Remember, Paul's writing these words from prison. You have to let that sink. Not just prison like we know prison, an ancient Roman prison that he was in. He's not sipping a cold drink as he reclines his seat on his private jet and shops for sneakers. He's sitting in a stone cell with a a small barred window as his only source of light. 
And he speaks confidently of hope in this glorious inheritance, in the new world that's waiting to be revealed. So it doesn't matter where he is. He's already connected to something far better than that. Paul didn't see himself stuck in a terrible situation. He saw himself as he truly was in progression towards the restored world that God is going to reveal one day. One day, the apocalypse happens. Not the end of the world with Mad Max, the unveiling of what it is that God's been doing all along. So what are our circumstances? Like, what what are we going through in life? I mean, I know that we live in a world that feels pretty pretty hopeless <laughs> on so many levels. Our society is fractured. We have so many problems that are so enormous that we seem to have given up on solving them. All we do is spew outrage about it all the time. Crime and poverty and human stupidity and racism and terrorism and all the other isms lurk in the shadows like monsters waiting to pounce. And as individuals, we have any number of problems that go on in our daily lives that we experience, the terrors and circumstances that threaten us, that feel like they could overwhelm us. But counter to all of that, Paul wants us to have a growing awareness of the hope we have in the world to come. The hope that's not grounded in the stuff here, but it's grounded in what it is that we're connected to in God. We are people of the overlap where heaven and earth meet. We are the people who've experienced a change in our hearts, who've received the Holy Spirit, and that in itself is a harbinger of a new world breaking in. That means we don't focus on the discomfort of our present state. doesn't mean that we shouldn't be uncomfortable. Of course we're going to be uncomfortable. Of course there's going to be a lot of things that distress and hurt and, and, and press in on us, but it means those things will not define us. That is not in our truest sense who we are. It is not in the truest sense the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is what it is that Christ has provided for us, not the things that we're experiencing here. So we fix our eyes on a world that we've known in our hearts, but we haven't yet seen it. And in that, we find the ability to endure and carry on in this life of following Jesus, of this ongoing discovery of looking for him. Okay, we'll keep reading here. Verse 19, he says, I also pray that you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead, or we should say actually the dead ones and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand and in the heavenly realms. Now, he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body, It's made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Now there's, okay, so look, (laughs) there's a lot of dense theology in this section that we will have to just kind of work our way through in this. In essence, Paul's prayer reveals to us that we're called to an ongoing discovery of Christ's resurrection power. 
But we kind of got to understand what we're talking about when we talk about that. The wording here is all over the top. The incredible greatness of God's power, that same mighty power. And, and that power he's talking about was expressed when Jesus was raised from among the dead ones. Uh, and dead ones is the original way that it's worded in the Greek. It's in the plural. And multiple scholars make that point and feel that it's important to keep the word dead plural because it speaks of how Jesus' resurrection was more than just Jesus coming back to life from a state of death. He was raised out from the dead ones of this broken world. This is important because it implies that his resurrection was not just an isolated event that affected only him. Jesus' resurrection was the first stage in our resurrection. His resurrection is an, uh, an official unveiling, we could say, of the final resurrection for all believers, an official unveiling, we could say, of a brand new world that's about to come on to the scene. His resurrection has seated him in the ruling place of power over every power at work. This is, listen, this is not, I mean, I don't even know how to express this. This is all encompassing what Paul is talking about here. Things that are actually well beyond my ability to fully grasp what he's trying to say in this. Over every power at work, that's both natural and spiritual, both spiritual entities and human governments. And Paul says this is for the benefit of the church. That means we share in Christ's power and authority in this world. And that's where you should be going, yeah, but Rob, (laughs) I sure don't feel like I have much power in this world. I feel like I'm pressed into the corner pretty much all the time. I got a pawn in somebody else's game. In fact, Rob, I could look back through church history and see plenty of times where you say for the benefit of the church, Jesus is in authority. And yet I've seen the church go through all kinds of difficult things in life. What what are we talking about here? Maybe what Paul's trying to get from us is a willingness to see things differently, to recognize Christ's authority over all things and realize that we are not victims in this world, never have been the moment we put our faith in him. We are not pawns of crowns or corporations. We are the body of the king, the one true king. We are the conduit through which Christ then fills all things everywhere. And Paul, you know, by saying that, using that terminology, he's reaching back into his his, uh, Jewish heritage in that statement. At one time, the presence of God, the glory of God appeared in one place. They knew they could count on. It was the temple. The temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, that's where, that was God's seat. That's where they expected him to be. That's where his manifest presence would reign from. But now, in Christ's power to raise us all from the dead ones, we are the temple. A statement made multiple places within the New Testament. We are his body all over the earth. All believers everywhere filling up the earth as we represent his power into this world. We are carry his power into this world when you know the alarm goes off on monday morning and you're thinking oh i gotta get up i gotta face this day again i gotta go into there and go you know whatever's happening remember this 
you're, you're not just going to a job. You're not just going to do these things that are here in front of you that people expect from you. You're carrying Christ's power, his resurrection power into the world, wherever we are. And so whatever is happening that is happening because of his kingdom, it's because of Christ's power, which is present everywhere and present through us. So when a person over here hears the gospel and has a change of heart or a hungry person over there gets fed by the church or when the church stands up to injustice or believers open their arms to the outcasts, that is Christ's resurrection power at work invading this world, sometimes in big, mostly in small ways in which God's power is going forth. Paul was not This, I think, is what he's trying to get across to his readers more than anything. Paul was not a victim of the Roman criminal system. He was an agent of God's power in this world. How do I know? Because 2,000 years later, I'm still standing up here reading his words to you, and you're still hearing it, and something's happening inside. We are not victims in this broken, beat-up world. We are carriers of God's resurrection power. And that's what Paul wants us to discover, to gain an increasing awareness of God at work in our lives and in this world as the world to come invades this one. Maybe Paul wants us to develop a boldness. Uh, about this. And I don't, I mean, you'll work that out, how you're going to work that out, how the Holy Spirit's going to lead you. I don't necessarily mean, you know, walking down the street, slapping someone on the head and waiting for them to fall down or something like that. But a willingness to invoke Christ's authority over this world and to express uh, redemption into this world, the redemption that is his inheritance, the redemption of all things. To pray for his power to be revealed in in our world, in our lives, in our families, in those we live with, in our city, in our community, in our neighborhoods, all of that, where Christ's power is filling up everything. An awareness of Christ's resurrection power could inspire us to proactive care for others, to encourage each other, to build each other up. Because that's the power of Christ at work in this, to look after each other's needs and see to it that we're cared for. Because that's the power of Christ at work in this world. This is God's intervention in our lives, which is often happening as he inspires us to, to do those things that represent his goodness, his benevolence, his kindness. Now, listen, I realize there's a lot of ways in which this theological truth of the the resurrection power of Christ gets revealed in our lives and into this world. But, you know, those are my initial thoughts. Those are the things that come to my mind on that. But something to become aware of. It's something that, you know, Paul wanted his readers to become aware of. It's what he wants us to be aware of as we sit here today. Christ's resurrection power presently, presently, with us, in us, working through us in this world. That's, I don't know, I I think that's phenomenal. And the main thing to remember is this is not our power we're talking about. Not our ability to muster up enough faith to strong-arm God into doing our bidding. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, it fell apart. What Paul seems to have in mind is a perspective, a way of viewing life that raises us from the dead end way of life that this world engages in. To see ourselves as united with this life-giving God 
who redeems us and invites us to join him in his life-giving activities in this present world as a sign of the world to come. So when we do show kindness to the outcast, it's a sign of the world that's to come. When we do pray for the person in need, it's a sign of the world to come. That's how I read it anyway. So that's Paul's prayer. Let's, let's take up the challenge of this ongoing discovery of God. Let's not allow this life of faith just to, to stagnate. Let's not just homestead on what we've learned so far. Let's pick up stakes. Let's pack up the wagons. Let's head out and see what else God has out here for us to discover in him. Let's grow in our awareness of who God is and what he means to us. Let's become more and more cognizant of the hope we have in a, in a whole new world, a world put right again by Christ's power. And let's join Jesus in bringing this resurrection world into view as we live our lives in him to be, to be showcases of what it is that God intends to do with all things. I just think that kind of life of discovery in God will not only change us, but I really believe it can have a profound impact on the world around us, in the world where we've been placed. To, to leave off the sense of trying to defend a wall, but taking up our backpacks and our Bibles and heading out to discover the territories that God's been waiting for us in, been waiting for you to get here. Whew. So Father, I just pray that, that this, this truth takes hold in our lives. I pray, Father, that you by your Spirit will awaken us to, to what it is that you have in store for us, Awaken us to the reality of a new world coming. Awaken us to the power of Christ's resurrection at work all around us. Awaken us to our connection to all it is that you've done, to the power that's represented in Christ's resurrection. I pray, Father, that you do these things by your Spirit. Lord, we certainly don't want to work it up, but we want you. We want you to inspire us and to lead us into the life that you intended for us all along. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you stand with us, please, while we close with the song.
just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment. I never want to leave. I'm not here for blessings. It's Jesus you with a blessing. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, please feel free to come on up. We have people who will pray with you and see what God will do. Uh, also, uh, when we dismiss, uh, in honor of Barb's 90th birthday, uh, we got cotton candy out in the courtyard. So <laughs> go by and get cotton candy and uh, be sure to wish Barb a happy birthday. Throw your hand up real quick, Barb. Okay, there you go. So 
see her, wish her a happy birthday. But let's say this blessing. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still. In Jesus Christ, hold firm, take heart. In his love, there is hope for you. Go in peace, you children of God. Go in cotton candy, you children of God.